Uh, our passage tonight is First Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 12. Let's read it together. Uh, for you yourselves know, brothers, uh, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. So, being effectually desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you now know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The word of the Lord. So this is our sixth week. Uh, We've been doing this thing called Camp Hope. We've been using Camp Hope as the driving metaphor for life on the inside of the church versus life on the outside of the church. If you go camping, you got to go outside. Life's unpredictable out there. It's dangerous. It's risky. But if you plunge yourself into that, you can experience discovery and adventure in a way that you can if you live life on the indoors with air conditioning and heating. Well, same is true for life in the church. Many of us, we would like to frame the church's existence by only what happens inside the church. Things like worship, committees, classes, and caring for our own. But see, when we do that, we are doing so usually, I think, because of fear. We fear what's going on in our communities, so we stay inside. We miss out on this adventure of living life on mission with Jesus. And here at Hope, Hope Presbyterian Church... Uh, we've been committed to doing three things in terms of mission. Serving the poor, reaching the skeptic, and doing the work of racial reconciliation. And these aren't going away. We've been talking about these the whole time. They're in our mission, vision, and values. But more importantly, they're biblical imperatives. You can't get around that. And other churches, they, they focus on different things. International missions, campus ministries, having a school. All those things are fine. They're not bad. We can't neglect these altogether either. But our focus is on these other fronts. And I think what's been really galvanizing about this experience, this Camp Hope, these last six weeks, has been able to be more clear about who we are and what we're trying to do. So yes, our church is about corporate worship. Our church is about neighborhood groups. It's certainly not about less than that, but it is about more. It's about these clearly defined missional emphases. 
So how are we going to do that? Those three fronts, how are we going to make all that happen? <laughs> well, the first thing we talked about was last week. Uh, Justin uh, had a great sermon about beauty and the role that beauty plays in the Christian faith. And beauty plays a role, yes, in our lives, but it plays a role in the community. I mean, think about it. See, skeptical, skeptics who have these reasonable barriers to the Christian faith, those barriers are overcome by this thing called beauty, by the arts. The poor. The poor have a way of, of having hope that there's a more beautiful future because of the arts. The arts have a way of depicting the possibility of what seems impossible. Racial reconciliation. So that was the first thing. Well, how we do this? We do this through the arts. And the second thing is this week, we talk about relationships. But when we think about these three fronts, I don't think many of us think about relationships first and foremost. When you bring up issues of, skeptic, of skeptics, people who have, have questions about the Bible, about the exclusivity of Christ, you usually think, what's going to reach a skeptic? A really smart person. <laughs> That's what's going to do the trick. They're going to be able to debate with them. They're going to have better arguments. You think about the poor. What's going to reach the poor for Jesus? We usually think, oh, really compassionate people. That's what it's going to take. Or we're going to have to have really good political leaders for that to happen. That's what we usually think. And then we think about racial justice. And we usually think, okay, what it's going to take, it's going to take our voice. It's going to take leveraging our privilege. That's what it's going to take to achieve racial justice. Now, I'm not here to say that smart people, compassionate people, uh, the government, and certainly not our advocacy, play no role <laughs> in seeing these things done. All I'm saying is that you can participate in all of those ways and be devoid of the thing that matters most, and it's love. It's relationships. That's part of the reason that Paul wrote what he did in 1 Corinthians 13, the passage you usually hear at weddings. And Paul says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, he's saying I could have prophetic powers, I could, be, I, I could be a great communicator of the tongues of men and angels, but none of that matters. But we usually think that's what we need in order to do this kind of work. But relationships just doesn't sound very appealing. It just sounds so ordinary. We want something more pragmatic. But friends, this is what it's going to take. If you want to do racial reconciliation, build a loving, trusting relationship. If you want to serve the poor, Build a loving, trusting relationship. Do, do you want to reach the skeptic, your neighbor, a family member? Build a loving, trusting relationship. So in order to kind of illustrate this, I'm going to tell a bunch of stories. The first one is with Lisa and Rosemary. Lisa and Rosemary, are they go to church together. Lisa's white, Rosemary's African-American. And they go on this mission trip to Nicaragua. If you've ever been on a mission trip with anybody, or really anybody for a week, you're kind of closed up in the same place, especially doing something meaningful like on a mission trip, you can build a lot of relationship really fast. And so they did. They get home. Rosemary invites Lisa over for lunch after church one day. And Rosemary begins to talk uh, what it's like being at a mostly white church 
And she said the reason she wanted to stay was because it was close to her house. The reason she wanted to stay was because she wanted to help the church in its attempt to do this work of racial reconciliation. But she also admitted to Lisa that even though she felt called, she didn't realize how lonely that it would be. And a week after this lunch, uh, there was a shooting in their uh, city. And uh, Rosemary uh, invited Lisa to come with her and two of her other African-American friends to a prayer meeting. They go to the prayer meeting, they pray, they come back, and a couple days later, uh, Lisa calls Rosemary, and Rosemary asks Lisa, did you feel comfortable on the drive there and back? And Lisa admitted that it was really hard for her. But Lisa had the guts to ask for feedback on what her interaction was like with Rosemary's other two friends. And here's what Rosemary said. Lisa, you moved too fast, too soon. It was like you were interviewing them. You need to earn the right to get personal, end quote. And Lisa said that what she's learning now is that these conversations with people who are different, that they're uncomfortable, that she needs grace from friends like Rosemary to help her know when she gets it wrong and to help her try again. That's a story of racial reconciliation. Very ordinary, just a relationship. All right, and second story, there might only be two other people in this room who know who Jonathan Jarks is. Uh, Jonathan Jarks is an NBA columnist. Uh, he's on uh, theringer.com. Probably only two of you go to ringer.com. I go. Been going for years. Love the website. A lot of good NBA content, if that's your thing. Go LeBron. Um, he's not a big famous person. And I'd been reading for years, and I'd heard that Jonathan Jarks had become a Christian. And so I looked for his testimony online. I found it. He had wrote it up. And because he's a columnist, he's a writer, it's really beautiful. So I'm just going to read you his, a short version of his testimony. Here's what he wrote. I never thought I would become a Christian. I wasn't raised in church. I grew up believing science had all the answers. That religion was merely a lingering superstition from a more primitive time. Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark, Jonah living in the belly of a whale for three days. None of that seemed plausible. There's Santa Claus, there's the Easter Bunny, and there's Jesus. I spent my first 25 years living by my own standards. I thought I could do whatever I wanted as long as I wasn't hurting people. I partied, drank, did drugs, looked for fulfillment in other people, but none of it made me happy. I wasn't content. No matter what I did, my journey to faith began six years ago. It began when I had dinner with a coworker and his wife who were Christians. There was nothing out of the ordinary about them, but the contrast between our lives was jarring. After dinner, I was going to meet up with some friends to split up some drugs. My coworker and his wife never got drunk. Instead of getting messed up on the weekends, they helped people. I went with them to church a few times. Nothing stuck. I saw the appeal of the Christian lifestyle. I just didn't believe any of it intellectually. But once I did, I called my old coworker and I asked if I could go to church with him and his wife. He obliged. I didn't know what I was walking into. Joining the church was awkward. I went to my first small group meeting at someone's house, and it was the first time I'd been sober at a social gathering in years. 
Much about my lifestyle had to change. Walking with the Lord hasn't always been easy. I've slipped up so many times I can't count, but I've never regretted this decision. The things that used to matter no longer do, at least not as much. I realized it didn't matter whether I had a successful career, a wife and kids, or a lot of money. None of those things defined who I was. My identity came from Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. End quote. You see how ordinary that was? Dinner? Not getting messed up? Bringing them to church? That's the story of a conversion of a skeptic. My last story. The last story is from the movie Soloist. Anybody seen it? The Soloist? You've got Jamie Foxx playing Nathaniel Ayers. You've got, um, you've got Lopez. Steve Lopez is played by Robert Downey Jr. Lopez is a, jun- is, is a, is a journalist. Ayers is a homeless guy who's got a, a janky violin with two strings that he's playing beautiful music on, and Lopez stumbles upon him. And because he's a columnist, he decides he's going to write a story about Ayers, and he finds out that Ayers used to go to Juilliard. But they had to, he was kicked out of Juilliard because he was struggling with schizophrenia. Now he's homeless. He writes up this piece. Lopez gets a lot of response. It's widely read. People send him a bunch of money. People send Lopez a bunch of money to help heirs. People, uh, somebody sent him a, a, a cello to give to him. Lopez decides he wants to partner him up with a top flight musician that he could get lessons from. Ayers decides he wants to give him some medical attention. But all this blows up in his face because the cello puts him in danger as a homeless person because it's valuable. He doesn't want money to get an apartment. He wants to live on the streets. He ends up getting lessons. It seems like it's going really good and then Ayers blows up when he's having this concert with the person he's getting lessons from in front of all these people. And the medical attention, when he finds out that Lopez's friend is a doctor, he storms out of the room and he threatens to kill Lopez. But they mend all of this up. They make up in many ways. Ayers ends up moving into an apartment. He still hears voices, But perhaps nothing more profound happens than when Lopez realizes that he's benefited from heirs more than heirs has benefited from him. Because what he does is he helps Lopez repair all these relationships that he's got in his own family. So yes, this story about Lopez and heirs is a story about serving the poor. But it's also a story of how when you serve the poor, you see that they can serve you in ways that no one else can. See, do you see all these connections? These are all stories about how relationships change things, and they change things redemptively. But I've got another story. I've got a story from the passage that we read earlier that shows us that we need a bit more than just a willingness to engage in relationship. We also have to be healthy gospel people. See, there's a story behind this letter, this letter to the church at Thessalonica. Thessalonica is this city in Greece. Paul has planted this church. You can read about how it was planted in Acts chapter 17. And when you read the first part of Acts chapter 17, what you find out is that Paul and Silas and some other friends have showed up in Thessalonica, 
They begin preaching in the synagogues, and they see a, a great thing happen. They see devout Greeks come to faith. They see Jews come to faith. And it says, not a few prominent women come to faith. So here you have it. The gospel is converting people, but it's also breaking down gender barriers and ethnic barriers, and most importantly, the barrier between God and man. But as you can imagine, the Jewish leaders, they hate what's going on here. They hate it so much that they turn the city into an upheaval. They're all against Paul and Silas, and so Paul and Silas have to sneak out of town in the middle of the night for fear of their life. And now Paul's writing this letter to those people who were converted, and he's got to defend himself because the Jewish leaders have been slandering him ever since. And so Paul does what he doesn't do very often in his letters, and that's that he gets extremely personal. He reveals a lot about himself. And you have this huge list of his attempts to validate himself based on the fact that he's a healthy person. All right? So let's put the, let's put the, the, the passage back up there. We're just going to walk through. We're going to build this list. All right? Look at verse 2. Paul says he's willing to suffer. If you're willing to suffer, you, can, you might be a healthy person. Verse 2 says even amidst hostility, he did not cower, but he was bold. Verse 3, he preached the truth. Verse 3 says that he's pure, and that's probably in regards to they were making, they were slandering him that he was having inappropriate sexual relationships with those leading women who were converted. That's why they converted. He says that he did not deceive them. He's not manipulative. He didn't deceive them with his supreme intellect, with his, uh, with his superior communication abilities. Rather, it was the power of the gospel that they joined this movement. Verse 4 says that he's got a clear conscience because he's been tested by God, trusted by God, approved by God, and he seeks to please God. Verse 5 says he didn't use flattery. Verse 5 says he's not greedy. And you see it, it, within the rest of that passage, you see that uh, he could have demanded compensation because he's an apostle. You see throughout the rest of that passage that he had a side job, that he didn't need a salary from the church because he was working. Verse 7 says he's gentle like a mother. Verse 8 says he not just preached the gospel to them, but he loved them with his life, that he's affectionately desirous for them. Verse 10, he appeals to his character. He says he's holy and blameless and he's righteous. Verses 11 and 12 says that he encouraged the church, he exhorted the church, he charged the church, not like an autocrat, not like a dictator, but like a father. See, so you see here, Paul's a healthy person. And healthy people build healthy relationships that God uses to spread the gospel. Paul's in Thessalonica not using them, not building up his followership, not just trying to tick off that he's planted another church. He's not using these people. He's giving himself to them. He's giving himself to them. Is that how you think about ministry? A lot of times in ministry we talk about gifts. The Bible talks about gifts too. But I think sometimes when we talk about gifts, we say, okay, I'm organized and so now I can organize events. I can build organizations for the kingdom. That's what I have to offer. I'm a musician. Therefore, I can help lead the church in praise. I'm a communicator, so I can teach the truth. You can go on and on and on and on and on. But if you do that, maybe 
You're just defining your contribution to the Christian community based on what you're doing, not on who you are. But the most contagious thing about you aren't your gifts, it's your person. If you're a healthy person, people around you become healthy. It's true in business, it's true in parenting, it's true in education, it's especially true in the church. The opposite is true too. If you're an unhealthy person, people around you become unhealthy. That's why Paul is saying that his ministry is valid because he was healthy. And so as you think about engaging in this mission, this clarified calling about who we are as a church, I've got to ask you a question. I had to ask myself this question this week. Are you healthy? You better be if you want to reach a skeptic. If you're not, your life's not going to validate your message. Your message isn't going to be very believable because it lacks the winsome effects that the gospel brings. Are you healthy? You better be if you want to do racial reconciliation. Because if you're not, you're going to use people of color to prove how inclusive you are. When people of color are not to be used, they are to be loved. See, if you're not healthy, you're going to give up on this whole thing of racial reconciliation. You're going to slip back into a world where everybody's like you. It's important to be healthy. Are you healthy? You better be if you want to serve the poor. If you're not, you're going to adopt a savior complex where the poor just become perpetually dependent on you. Or if you're not healthy, you'll ignore the poor altogether because it just brings so much guilt. Sounds hopeless, doesn't it? How's Paul going to pull this off? How's he going to be able to be healthy so that he can give his life to them and it's actually a good thing? How's he going to be able to see these diverse people reconciled like what, that's what happened in Acts 17? How's he going to be stand up to this opposition? See, I, I think by this point, when you're reading, if you just read 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12 in isolation, you didn't know anything else about the Bible, probably would feel just like we're all feeling but if you zoom out, you know a little bit more. You, you know that there's this huge gap. There's this gap between what's required of us and where we're actually at. And a lot of us in our heads, we know how that bridge has been gapped. We know that it was Jesus' life, that it was his death, and it was his resurrection that bridged that gap. But that's only in our heads. It's not changed anything. Our experience says there's still this gap. What well, might be, because you only see Jesus as a historical figure. It might be because you don't see Jesus as a present reality. And that's why we live these lives devoid of power. But power has been offered to you. Galatians 2.20, Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Did you catch that? Christ lives in you. 
today. Not when you get to heaven, today. It's true right now, and it's not preacher hyperbole to say that it's the most amazing thing you'll hear in your whole life, that you live in Christ and Christ lives in you. And when you recognize that, you'll see him live his life out of you. You really will decrease and he will increase. You'll begin to see him reach skeptics through you. After all, who is better at reaching skeptics than Jesus? You'll begin to see him serve the poor. That's what Jesus' whole ministry was about. You'll begin to see Jesus reconcile you with people who are different than you. After all, he was a Jewish man who reconciled with a Samaritan woman, a Syrophoenician woman, and a Roman centurion. See, brother and sister, you and I have access to that kind of power. I know it's mysterious, this whole union with Christ, he and us, us and him, but it's real. And it's what makes us healthy. It's what gives us the ability to reach the skeptic in a healthy relationship. It gives us the ability to serve the poor. It gives us the ability to do racial reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, that's mission. That's Jesus' mission, and he lives in you. What might he do in you? Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we struggle to believe this. Lord, we know things in our heads, but our experience tells us something very, very different. And so, Lord, I pray uh, that we would realize uh, the access we have to this kind of power. And uh, so, Lord, I pray we would uh, get out of the way, that we would gladly decrease, even if it's painful, so that you might increase in us. Oh, Lord, heal us. Heal us as individuals. Heal us as a church. Heal our city. Heal our world. In Jesus' name, amen.